S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 16, starring Broderick Crawford, originally aired on March 19th, 1977. Greetings, everyone. My name is Keith. Welcome to SN Hell. And with me, as always, is my good buddy, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. And how about this? We've got our uh, our, our most prolific third chair with us tonight. It's Chili. How you doing tonight, Chili? I'm doing great. Are you gentlemen ready to talk about Broderick Crawford? I, I mean, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm ready, but watching this episode, I cannot wait to hear Matt's opinion on Broderick Crawford. <laughs> <laughs> well, Broderick Crawford was born in 1911 in Philadelphia to traveling vaudeville performers. He was a character actor on stage, TV, radio, movies, and he was almost always cast as the heavy. He was basically a B-lister with some high-profile films uh, where he was a supporting actor, sort of like a Michael Madsen of his time. In 1949, he played a character called Willie Stark in All the King's Men, and that was based on the uh, life and times of Huey Long, who was a long-term governor of Louisiana, and uh, was actually subject of uh, one of the crappy songs done by Randy Newman at our Mardi Gras special. Uh, Crawford got the Oscar. In 1955, he became one of TV's first tough guys, uh, the hard-ass cop, when he played the lead on, on Highway Patrol for four seasons. Um, at this point in time, Crawford's next big role was The Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover, which was due to come out in December of 77. Full disclosure, it's all over the place. He was a, an in-demand actor, could be a very demanding actor. He had his demons. He was a heavy drinker. He loved good food. Production assistant, later producer Neil Levy, had to, was ordered to keep a very close eye on Broderick Crawford as he frequently zipped out of the office to head on down to the pub usually saying he forgot his script downstairs. So that's the skinny on Broderick Crawford. You're trying to tell me this motherfucker can move? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> glaciers can move, you know. <laughs> Good Lord. Continental drift of sorts. You know, you look at this guy and I'm like, eh, how hard is it to keep tabs on him? D never underestimate, though, when, when somebody wants their vice. Yeah. They'll get yeah. it. They'll get it. And we have a sort of a hybrid musical guest tonight. It's actually called Levon Helm and the RCO All-Stars, but it's a combination of uh, Dr. John Levon Helm and uh, Paul Butterfield, along with a uh, huge backing band and the SNL band. So the cold open, it's called Goodbye Saccharin, and this was written by Marilyn Suzanne Miller, Cheryl Hardwick, and Paul Schaefer. And it features Rhonda Weiss and the Rondettes. And Rhonda Weiss, of course, is Gilda, but the Rondettes are Jane Curtin, Lorraine Newman, and Linda Ronstadt. And they sing a song called Goodbye Saccharin in the sort of Phil Spector 50s, 60s women's pop group style. Saccharin was about to be banned in 1977. Public outcry and industry regulation stepped in. At the time, they were saying it was hazardous to your health and caused cancer in rodents. Um, and the uh, compromise was to just put that on the package until the year 2000 when it was eventually removed. I really <laughs> like this sketch. It was a very odd choice for a cold open. And I found it kind of jarring because Rhonda's still a relatively new character. And she's, uh, she's not wearing her glasses, though she has them on the top of her head. I thought this was just a fun way to start the show, but an odd way to start the show. I agreed. Like, I didn't understand what the song was about. You know, I associate saccharin not so much with the sugar substitute, but, you know, people saying something that's very schmaltzy is very, you know, saccharin. But yeah, I'm, in, I'm with you. Even though I didn't fully understand it at first, I liked it. It was something totally different from all the cold opens I saw. And I am very confused about Linda Ronstadt being only there for this one bit and not being the musical guest or not having anything else to do on the show is very strange. I didn't care for this at all. I uh, really thought it was a, a dreadful way to open the show. Uh, I didn't think it was funny. You know, musically it was, I know that they're, they're going for something and I suppose good for you. Stylistically, you've achieved it, but I didn't get it at first. And then I'm like, oh, okay. And now the monologue. Crawford comes out home base. It has a chair, a rug, coffee cup, little table there. He sits down and says it's been 37 years since he's been uh, in that studio and done radio. 
And the monologue was basically written about a point in time when he got fired from a radio gig at NBC Studios, and he's glad he's finally getting another chance to work there. He then says, I'm going to sit back and enjoy the show, and the implication here is that Crawford is just going to be sitting at this chair at home base watching the show all night. To me, this is less monologue and more old dude just telling a story. And to be honest, I I, I can't imagine anyone's going to get a writing credit for this beyond Crawford himself. Uh, This didn't bother me, but it definitely wasn't great and wasn't overly funny. Yeah, I agree. It wasn't overly funny. I find the first few minutes of the show with a unique cold open and a very unique monologue where, you know, a big fat old man comes out and sits in a chair like the creepy old guy from the Garfield Halloween special. I was like, okay, well, this is going to be a different episode. And I knew this episode could go one way or another. You know, I like when they try new things. I'm always a big fan of, yeah, try new things on the show, mix it up and be different. And, you know, one could argue that they did that a little bit with the cold open, which, by the way, I forgot to mention, I really hate some of these limp deliveries of live from New York. It's Saturday night. And maybe it's just because of the product of our more modern times when they just really built it. I didn't know what to make of this friggin' old guy. I didn't know who he was. He comes out and he has a seat and he tells a story. About an old job and like that's the monologue. I feel like I'm at the bar down the street. It was it was weird. I didn't like it. I got I got bad vibes. Sit back and enjoy the show. Like, yeah, you're you're gonna, aren't you? <laughs> I'll take your hosting money, but I'm not doing anything for it. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing and you know, one of the more recent episodes I did with you guys was uh Ruth Gordon. I think Ruth's probably a little bit older than Broderick was at this point, but not by much. And she had much more energy, and I felt like she was, I guess, trying to be a bit more energetic. But there is something I appreciate about just a fat old guy being a fat old guy. (laughs) He looked like he was, you know, he liked being able to tell the story. So I thought, this is going to be something different. And he's not going to come out here and pretend to be, look, I can still do it, guys. I don't know if that's the best way to describe it. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with a cranky old sourpuss sitting down every once in a while. But... Uh, as the show went on and I realized like, oh, this is kind of all he's going to be doing. <laughs> it's, it was a different episode so far as far as the host goes. Incidentally, super energetic Ruth Gordon is 15 years older than Broderick Crawford. <laughs> I disagree hotly, by the way, that uh, there, there is no place for a cranky old sourpuss on the hot late night TV show. This is not the first wretched hosting choice the show has made. Won't be the last, but it is certainly one of them. Our first sketch is Samurai Hitman, and this was, of course, written by Alan Zweibel. So we get freshly shaven Bill Murray, who has lost his mustache, and Garrett Morris, and they play advisors to Mafia Don, Don Marcella, played by Dan Aykroyd. They talk about moving into the neighboring family territories, the Kirshners and the Corneliuses. So they've called a hitman to come and uh, take care of the uh, the heads of the other families, and it involves whacking the Dons at a Benihana uh, hibachi restaurant. Futaba comes in. It's, of course, uh, Belushi. He will not do the kiss of death, and they roll out the hibachi table where Belushi basically screws around with ingredients and cuts up food, and then he takes out his, uh, his sword to chop two cabbages in half, which represent uh, Cornelius and Kirshner's heads. Of course, there is a joke. You have to whack Don Cornelius and Don Kirshner. Um, I thought this was a good idea. Fairly well done. Had a very different vibe than the other samurai pieces. I thought Belushi, you know, all things considered, he was uh, he was at his best samurai here. This is the best I've seen it and uh, I'm I'm at a point now I've watched some of the uh, Kurosawa character and I'm seeing this definitely as an impression of that character I I disagree as soon as Belushi appeared as the samurai I actually thought I would have been much more interested watching the other three as mobsters once Belushi walked in I just thought oh here we go again um I will agree a little bit in terms of some of his interactions with uh Ackroyd with the kiss of death and all that was a little bit better, a little bit more, I don't know if downplayed, it might be the better way to put it. But yeah, overall, if I never see the samurai again, I will be a very happy man. I, I'm not going out for these sketches on stage with this guy and his sword unless I'm getting some sort of hazard pay. The way he's swinging that around, you, know, you can't tell how far Dan is standing back. I don't know. He's not careful. I know that much. He's not careful. 
As absolutely ridiculous as Bill Murray's mustache looked, I, I miss it already because it really looked ridiculous. It was sinful at that Mardi <laughs> Gras special. But the, uh, yeah, so when they're, they're talking and they're like, okay, yeah, we got a guy, we got a guy. And I didn't see it coming. So when, when he actually came through the door, I don't want to say I popped or anything, but I, I, mm -hmm. I did have a, uh, kind of, I, I reacted. Yeah. So for better or for worse, uh, it, it did cause a reaction in me. I didn't think it was especially funny, but, uh, I mean, whatever, he's just out there. He does the, the grunting samurai voice well. My big takeaway, Matt, was how much I missed Buck Henry. Oh, my God. What a perfect foil. Yeah, I, I, I just watch him swing the sword around and see how close he uh, comes to maybe hitting somebody. I can see why it's popular. I mean, it's it's there's a cutesy bit to it. He's like, oh, I'm going to do the kiss of death. And, you know, they understand him, even though he's not saying anything. There, there are slightly amusing elements to it. And I, I at least like... The fact that uh, they, they mixed it up a bit and it, it was a very different sketch for the samurai character. Cornelius being a much darker cabbage than uh, than Kirshner got a good laugh out of me. That was pretty funny. I, f I guess I felt tepid about it. Somewhere, somewhere between you two. Uh, we now go to a Chiron. There's a woman in the audience who has a boring fantasy life. We then go to a Gary Weiss film. And this is Broderick Crawford roaming around his old neighborhood in Hell's Kitchen. He sees some old friends and acquaintances and gets mobbed by, not mobbed, but gathered around by some fans. Crawford says the, uh, the the neighborhood's still beautiful, but it's changed a lot. The, the way the fans reacted to uh, to Crawford seemed to me more like a, a, a bunch of people sort of celebrating the local boy who made good than like a sycophantic random fanning. And uh, then Crawford goes to Sardi's restaurant and talks to Vincent Sardi Jr. For me, I thought the visuals were great. Uh, I like seeing old people revisiting their old stomping grounds, but there really wasn't much to this middle of the road Gary Weiss for me. This is one of my favorite Gary Rice, uh, Gary Weiss bit so far. It was nice, you know, the old fella going around the old neighborhood. It wasn't funny at all. <laughs> well, it takes us back to the time of the New York we've heard about, and then the New York from sixty years before that. It was this was you know, this is what I expect from a Gary Weiss film, and in that sense, I enjoy it when they come on. Uh, my, my brain adjusts accordingly. And uh, in doing so, I found this gave me enjoyment. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm saying it now. Late 70s, like 74 to 79, maybe even into the early 80s. I don't want to nitpick it. Yesteryear New York is uh, one of my first stops in the time machine. So I, I appreciate getting to look at it. New York looked gritty till season four of Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> so now we'll go to a commercial. It's Mel's Hide Heaven, and it's Dan Aykroyd returning as Mel from Mel's Char Palace. And he's selling leather jackets, and he's got Bill Murray and Garrett Morris there as models. This is the same notion as the Char Palace. You rope, you stunt, and you skin your own uh, your own leather jacket. This time around, Mrs. Mel is played by Lorraine instead of Gilda. Still comes in with a chainsaw, though. It's probably just a casting issue, but Mel actually having a different wife less than a year after the original Mr. Mel is, is perfect sleaze for me, though <laughs> Gilda was so good in the other one. Um, I enjoyed this. It's not a patch on Char Palace, but uh, this gave me a couple of laughs. Yeah, I think this should have had a bit more to it, but it was good. It was a good, quick little commercial. Uh, I don't know what more they could have done. Obviously, they're not going to show anyone butchering the cows in front of them, but if they had like some on-location footage of a farm instead of just the you know cows and the green screen or whatever it was, as dumb a takeaway as it is, I liked the jackets. I would have bought one of the jackets, even the tassley one Murray had on. The jackets do be looking pretty hot. I didn't like this one as much as the first one either, but still absolutely liked it. Let's get that right. I heard a little bit of a pop for uh, Dan Aykroyd when he announced himself. There was a, there was a smattering of flaws before the, they just let him keep running on with it. Good stuff. I always enjoy Dan doing these characters. And Lorraine looks good with a chainsaw. Scream Queen. Yeah. So we now have a Chiron. A person is ruthless when wet. We now go to Levon Helm and the RCO All-Stars. So Dr. John, Levon Helm, and Paul Butterfield with a huge backing band. Now the story behind this is basically that Levon Helm sort of recorded an album with a bunch of musicians like playing with, and a bunch of them were the uh, SNL band. I, I don't have exactly where this performance fit in the chronology of uh, the recording and releasing of this album. I, I really loved this. I mean, I think the band is great. I like Dr. John's voice. The thing that jumped out at me is like, I don't know what the scheduling was like, but Dr. John is from New Orleans and he always integrated like 
voodoo stuff and Mardi Gras themes into his stuff. And, and I mean, we just recorded the Mardi Gras special not too long ago, and this would have been exponentially better than Randy Newman. Uh, that being said, I really enjoyed this. I thought this was great. No, nah, this is not my type of music at all. I appreciate that it is good musicality to it, but I, I'm not going to say it was bad. It's just I didn't enjoy it. I think if it's your type of music, great. You probably had a lot of fun for the you know five minutes or whatever they played. But for me, there wasn't even much to look at, which sometimes, especially with these big bands, I say, okay, I don't enjoy the music that much, but at least I might be able to nitpick one or two people in the background who kind of look ridiculous. But yeah, there wasn't too much that I really got out of this at all. Oh my God, save me MTV. Please come on the air with your music videos and drive a stake through the foul heart of this shitty, shitty late 70s AM rock. <laughs> shitty, shitty song. I've, I've pontificated out loud here. Like, how do they even fucking pick these musical guests? Like, th this isn't popular, cool shit. Where's this coming from? And Keith sent me something and it was just like, yeah, we were just like picking the stuff we liked. You know, this is like the shit we listened to. Oh, okay, good for you. I'm glad the show is your own personal little stereo instead of making it a better show. Mm. I, didn't, I, I didn't like this. Save me, MTV. And uh, Dr. John does survive MTV, goes on to sing the Blossom theme song. <laughs> that doesn't count as <laughs> I think the reason I didn't like this, even visually, is because there was no unifying theme to the band. I'm not saying everyone needs to come out dressed like Boney M and have completely matching outfits, but you got like the, you know, the guy in the piano with the big ber fucking beret and the beard. Then you have the cowboy in the back. Yeah, from what I understand, they're not an actual full-time band. They're a bunch of people who came together, and that's fine. But this is a fucking deep cut here. But it reminded me of, like, the jukebox band from Shining Time Station. <laughs> How they had, like, guy with the little mustache on the piano, but then they had, the, like, it was just everything thrown together, and it just no symmetry to it. Our next sketch is a, is a sort of a big one in SNL lore. It's called The New Kid, and it was written by Bill Murray and Lorne Michaels. So it's a monologue from Bill Murray sitting at a desk where he says he just doesn't think he's making it on the show. And he asks people for their support and laughter. Like I said, this is a very historic piece, and it was kind of inspired by Bill Murray truly feeling like he wasn't doing very well on the show and wasn't being accepted by the audiences and to some degree the writers. Says he's a funny guy, but hasn't been on the hasn't been funny on the show, and his friends and neighbors and people are disappointed. So the backstory on this one, the idea was hatched during a conversation between Murray and Michaels. The lore is that immediately after this pitch, Bill Murray was suddenly a superstar. I'll be interested to gauge that as we go on, because I, I don't think that's the case. As far as the performance and the writing, this was really good. Murray was either truly nervous or carried it off like it was. I remember this being a lot longer than it was, but I'm glad it wasn't. Nowadays on television, this is sort of in vogue and has been for a while. You see it and these sort of direct appeals are, are, are more common. At the time, it wasn't the case. This was somewhat cutting edge. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I like Bill Murray. And I think in that respect, like to think about this being the sketch that whether it does or doesn't launch him into superstardom definitely made him feel like, okay, well, this guy actually is funny because up until now, the things I've seen him do on SNL have not been great. And it was kind of accurate. So the fact that this sketch is that, you know, you know, is a very meta thing of I'm not that funny on the show so far, but trust me, I am funny. It's actually almost the perfect way for Bill Murray to get his, you know, quote unquote, start or his big break. So yeah, this is great. I love this. This is a really fun sketch and it wouldn't have worked as well if he still had the mustache. No, he'd have been arrested. Keith, I watched this morning the uh, first five years documentary piece and they, they played this during that. So when, when it actually came on later, when I was watching the episode, I tripped me out a little, but I loved it. It was fun to see it twice today. Uh, he was great in it. I thought it was smart. I thought it was funny. I thought it was cool. And uh, he carried it so well. Th this was a big home run for me. I laughed. I felt, what more do you want? No, understandable. Yeah. Yeah, it works. The next sketch is Lucy Abom, and it's written by Michael O'Donohue. And this is a takeoff the, of the old I Love Lucy bit where Lucy and Ethel have to pack chocolates on a conveyor belt. This one has no Ethel, and it has Lucy putting whipped cream and a cherry on the top of a bomb. 
Gilda is back with her great Lucy impression, and Dan Aykroyd is awesome as the sort of generic manager, Mr. Witherbottom. Uh, not much to say. This is a great pair to the old Lucy episodes. Uh, Gilda's physical comedy is really good. Very accurate takeoff on Lucy, too. The audience's slow burn reaction is stellar, and the lunacy of sort of putting whipped cream on top of uh, and cherries on top of a nuclear warhead was just too funny for me not to love. This was awfully dangerous, though. It was live TV. There's a moving conveyor belt. There's a bunch of round canisters. If any of them dropped, the sketch could have gone bad, but uh, Gilda had it go under control. And uh, the very end, after the explosion, when the one does drop, we see Gilda and Dan looking very cartoony with uh, sort of uh, ash all over their face and their hair sticking up. I, I really thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this one. I'm a hard disagree on that one. Ackroyd was always, you know, he's Ackroyd himself. Maybe I'm not familiar with Lucy enough outside of the her whiny character, but I didn't really find this to be a fantastic impression of her. And yeah, the nukes, the whipped cream on the nukes. I don't know, once again, if that was a reference to something I didn't get. I mean, the fact that she was doing the conveyor belt things with nukes was a funny concept. I felt the conveyor belt was almost going too slow. There didn't seem to have that level of urgency. And I get that might have been because of what you said. It was live, so maybe they didn't want to take the chance of them actually falling over, but it didn't have the manic energy that I think they needed for this. Kudos to them, though. I assume it was all done live, so the makeup and hair, uh, getting that done in the brief time where they had the bombs going off is impressive. I don't know, this is a bit of a damp sketch for me. I didn't like it. Uh, once again, I find myself somewhere in the middle of you both. Uh, Chili, I totally agree with what you're saying, that there was... It almost felt like there was another gear it could have gone to. But I mean, I guess to Keith's point, you're, you're dealing with a live conveyor belt and perhaps that's uh, a little nerve wracking. I really enjoy Gilda's Lucy and her, her wine at the end just cracked me up. Uh, that's, she just does it so well. You know, when she's on, shit, is she ever on? It didn't reinvent the comedy wheel or anything. I just thought it moved at a good pace. Gilda was great. The cream and the cherry on the bombs is, is pretty rich. You know what? I did like it. I'm actually surprised you didn't, Chili. Um, for some reason, I thought this would be more up your alley. No, I mean, I, I like physical stuff. I just found, I didn't find it had the urgency that the actual, you know, the actual Lucy bit had. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing a parody, you have to almost bump that up as opposed to bring it down. Yeah. So we're at Weekend Update, and in a continuing spin from the uh, Jane's response to being called not sexy enough, she describes her stocking, boots, garter belt, and talks about her mesh string bikinis that she's not wearing at that point in time. Matt, anything? She really just fucking leaned into it, yeah? Yeah. Like, yeah. She, she, she's given the come on eyes at the camera, she's got the, the sultry voice going, and she is selling it, and I am buying. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we go into the, uh, the the segment. Rosalind Carter shows off the official presidential portrait, and it's, uh, I think, a child's drawing. Garrett reports on the Black Governor Conference. Nobody has shown up because there are no black governors, and he's disappointed that he has to do this instead of Lorraine. Jane says the whole thing was a joke, and Garrett will next be going to the conference for uh, black popes. In a very inappropriate joke, uh, Roman Polanski, Polanski is going to be opening a daycare. And Idi Amin is training to be a basketball player with the Harlem Globetrotters. And there's stills of Idi Amin playing basketball to the tune of Sweet Georgia Brown. And then we go to a re-airing of Puppy Uppers. Now, Chili, Matt, and I have already seen Puppy Uppers, but I know you haven't. So uh, any thoughts on the first half, gentlemen? Uh, I agree with Matt. I could have listened to Jane talking for another five minutes or so. I uh, could have replaced a couple sketches that we had earlier. Uh, the black governor's bit, you know, Garrett was way off timing-wise. Good job, USA. It's 45 years later, and there are still zero black governors. And Roman Polanski, 45 years later, and he's still free. Pretty insane to think about those two facts and... They're being parodied almost 50 years ago. Puppy Uppers was hilarious. <laughs> I loved Puppy Uppers, just the name of it. I have a five-month-old puppy myself, and I'd be more inclined to get him some doggy downers, but Puppy Uppers would come in handy sometimes. Fun sketch. I really thought Edie Amin playing basketball was hilarious. <laughs> I didn't expect to laugh that much at it. I did. 
I like the the doggy sketch too. Uh, what what a sad state of affairs in our world when we will pump anything full of uh, various chemical cocktail and drugs. We do it to our pets. We do it to our children and ourselves. Stop the madness. But overall, I thought it, I thought it was a pretty good weekend update. The Garrett bit was shitty. I did not like that at all. Garrett, Garrett was awkward in it and train wreck. Bad idea. But the you know the jokes were good. Jade's delivery was good. So John Belushi comes out to discuss the luck of the Irish. And this turns from like a smiling tribute to the Irish to a a violent anger-laden attack on the phrase luck of the Irish and just a bunch of personal anecdotes. Curtin tries multiple times to interrupt, but he's not having it. He gets so mad, uh, he winds up throwing himself from his chair. It's been a while since we've seen one of these, and this was probably the best I've seen. I thought this was absolutely great. I loved how he was ranting. I don't even think there was a script involved in half of those rants, and it gets really personal. He's talking about this guy and that guy, and I really like this. Then we go to Jane signing off, and she says, Good night, Mary Richards, and have a pleasant tomorrow. And two days later, the Mary Tyler Moore show was airing its final episode. Uh, contrasting this line, which seems like kind of a tribute to, to Chevy's mean-spirited jabs at the cast and show last year, uh, this was a much nicer feeling. So the second half worked for me. Belushi was good, and uh, the Jane bit made me feel good. Uh, the Belushi bit didn't do nothing for me. I, I don't know. I feel like I'm being <laughs> negative every time I see Belushi. He does do some things I enjoy, but I'm just uh, tired of uh, of the shtick that always just devolves into him yelling about some guy he knows doing drugs or whatever. Maybe just the episodes I, I'm doing with you guys, you see more, so you might see more of a range from him. But for me, it seems like uh, every time he's on update, it's the same thing. Like Keith, I really enjoyed Belushi's bit here. Having said that, I do not think that your criticism of Belushi is unjust. I remember episodes in season one. There's episodes that we've done this from season one. My only memory of them is shitting on Belushi. Sometimes he deserves it. You know, he has a sweet side, they'll say. You know, that's what they say about assholes. Everybody says that about an asshole. You'll find somebody that says, oh, but he has a side you don't know. You're like, fuck that. He really comes across like a bit of an asshole. And I think that comes out in his comedy and his characterizations. So you fucking have at criticizing him, despite the fact that I think he was funny here. So Highway Patrol. There's a bit of a messed up Chiron here at the beginning. Dan Aykroyd comes in as a cop and uh, Broderick Crawford is actually in a sketch now. He's playing uh, one of his old characters. Belushi starts the sketch playing a young greaser who turns out to be Jack Kerouac. A call comes in from Lorraine and Jane Curtin, who are playing conjoined twins, and Lorraine is going to shoot her sister. So Aykroyd and Crawford go to the scene of the uh, the hostage taking, I suppose, and uh, Lorraine says she wants to be charged for one ticket when she buys an airline ticket, and she wants to work somewhere other than a circus. Belushi returns in the sketch, and he and Murray play a conjoined uh, priest, and they get the gun from Lorraine. There's a great line from Belushi as they argue where he figured he should be the one to take the gun because he's the left side and Murray always gets to shake hands. And then they get a call about uh, James Dean's accident. And Broderick Crawford brings the episode in or brings the sketch home by saying, when you drive, use a car. Uh, This was a little all over the place. It it wasn't devoid of cleverness and funny bits, but... uh, I kind of got lost at this one. It was also the second one of the night that they used uh, black and white. I usually like it, but it's a bit of an overkill thing for me tonight. I kind of found this was a bit of a tale of two sketches. The beginning part with Jack Kerouac did nothing for me. And even sort of the end part when they were back in the police station. But I did enjoy the bit with the Siamese twins. (laughs) And in, in particular, the Siamese priests. The part with the conjoined twins was very enjoyable for me. Uh, everything else. Crawford was a bit shaky, but I overall liked this sketch quite a bit, but there were some parts that could have been chopped. Chopped the whole thing. I couldn't make heads or tails of this nonsense. It strikes me as the exact kind of thing that a writer starts putting down on paper and they think they're being very clever and it probably looked really good on paper. But when you go out there, I mean, you have read-throughs. Okay, you know what? Maybe it's good on the read-through too. Maybe there's a manic energy to it and uh, everybody's really into it. But when this hits dress rehearsal, how do you not stop and look at this and be like, what the fuck is this? What are we doing? 
This doesn't make any sense. It's way too long. It doesn't, it just spins its wheels at times. Shame on you for putting this on the show after you saw it in dress rehearsal and knew what it was. You knew what it was. You did it anyway. We have a Chiron on someone in the audience who didn't applaud for Tinkerbell. We now go to Baba Wawa at large, and it's, uh, again, Baba Wawa, and she's interviewing Godzilla. And this is Belushi in a costume. And he talks about his life and his career. Uh, There's more of the regular Baba stuff, but this sketch is all about Godzilla and Belushi doing this hilarious, humble, friendly Godzilla. And then he demonstrates trampling a small city. I can't believe I'm going to say this. This is a Baba Wawa sketch I actually liked. Uh, Baba was a non-entity. Didn't have to be her. Could have been anyone. And this was all about Godzilla. Yeah, I uh, have not been a big fan of the Baba Wawa sketches, but I am a huge Godzilla fan. So honestly, I was very nervous for a split second there when she said they're interviewing a famous Asian actor. And I was like, Jesus, we already had the samurai, like cut it out. And then it showed Godzilla. And I was like, fuck, here we go. All right. So yeah, no, I liked this a lot. I'm sure a big part of it's just because, like I said, I'm a Godzilla fan. Uh, You know, I have him tattooed on my leg. And I like the fact that he just talked like a regular guy. I liked it a lot. And partially because it was very stupid. Ah, nope. This doesn't work for me, lads. Cheryl Ann O'Terry was born September 19th, 1962. She is a living American actress and comedian and a primetime Emmy Award nominee. Very good. We now go again to the RCO All-Stars. And they perform Ain't That a Lot of Love. Good song for me, not what the first one was. And uh, I, I think Levon sang lead, lead on this one. Um, I, I expect more of the same from you, gentlemen. Normally, even if I'm not enjoying the songs, I will stick around the whole way through. But I found this was not only not my cup of tea, but it was also seemed more repetitive. So in a very rare case, I kind of jumped ahead on this one. I want my MTV. <laughs> Our next sketch is the Houston plan, and this is Richard Nixon. He plans to set up a system of wiretaps on J. Edgar Hoover. Ackroyd as Nixon and Lorraine as Julie Nixon, usually played by Gilda. They break into J. Edgar Hoover's bedroom and they wake Hoover up. Murray and Garrett come in as armed security guards, both with blonde wigs. Ackroyd tries to expose a secret about the plumbers, but Hoover already knows about it. Hoover demands written consent to break the law from Nixon, but Nixon won't do it. Hoover then plays a audio clip of Nixon with a Chinese prostitute. Bill and Garrett then catch Julie Nixon, and uh, Crawford tells them to let her go and that they'll meet later in the steam room. Uh, And Crawford goes to bed with a teddy bear. Great impression from Aykroyd. This is timely for Crawford because he has the Hoover movie coming out soon. Garrett and Murray being a little being effeminate with the blonde wigs was just kind of stupid. This was just not a great sketch with some good uh, some good impressions in it. Yeah, this was not much to it. They always had the typical, you know, gay jokes about J. Edgar Hoover. As far as I could tell, none of the typical cross-dressing jokes, which is Oddly enough, that I was always brought up on with my J. Edgar Hoover jokes. I, I did laugh at the, uh, all right, boys, you head to the steam room and I'll see you in a half hour. I liked the fact that Crawford, you know, they had the bits about it and he delivered uh, some of the lines that were definitely insinuating him being gay, but he wasn't playing him effeminately. He was still playing him gruff. So it was different. But when the funniest part of your entire sketch is Garrett coming out with a bright blonde wig, your sketch is not that great. Truly not that great. I uh, enjoyed the uh, impression of Nixon. I mean, Dan Aykroyd's just good. He's good at doing it. But it, I mean, it doesn't mean just because he's good at doing it, just, I mean, just fucking stand there and read a grocery list. Maybe they were trying too hard. I just, I didn't like it. This is around in the show where I'm like, we don't have a host. This is a hostless show. And uh, maybe we're feeling it. Our next segment is another musical one. It's The Meters. Now, The Meters were bumped off the Mardi Gras show in their hometown of New Orleans, where they would have blown the roof off the place. And this is sort of their makeup appearance. Meters, New Orleans funk band that went through uh, quite a few personnel changes at this point in time. But this is pretty neat funk. Not my genre, but I I did like the song. To me, the the big takeaway was that... uh, this was really just a shitty way to make up to make up for them getting bumped from the Mardi Gras special and uh, sort of tacked on at the end here. Kind of felt bad for the meters again, but uh, I enjoyed their music. 
This is also not a type of music that I would typically drive around listening to, but for me, I recognize this as being much more enjoyable, much more fun than the RCO All-Stars. I appreciated this way more, and it was just fun. Like, I, I don't know, I like this much better. Uh, once again, though, at the end, I had to say, like, so Linda Ronstadt's not coming out at all for a musical thing after this. I get they probably had extra music because their host was very limited with what they could do with them. So maybe they just threw in an extra musical bit. But, you know, this is uh, taking a page out of Matt's book. There's too much music on this episode. The opening bit was a musical sketch and then three musical acts. It was a bit. It was too much. Although this was the best musical bit of the bunch for my uh, for my money. As soon as I know it's music again, I'm like, "Fuck music again!" You know, I go into this in the interest of full disclosure. I go into this with a bad attitude, and I can't help it. I'm sorry. They did this to me. I'm conditioned now. Yeah, it's an improvement from the RKO Orchestra or whoever the hell they are. I'm sick of hearing music that I can find for a dollar in the value village racks and that's you know what that's oh i just that's the aesthetic that saturday night live music gives me with exceptions of course like zappa and patty smith and and yes boss gags uh there are exceptions to the rule but as a whole as a and as a vibe or as an aesthetic season one and season two saturday night live music is exactly you see when you go look in the bin at Value Village. It's the kind of music. It might not always be the name, but God damn it, it sounds just like it. And sometimes it is just the name. <laughs> A music that can best be described as being like orange, brown, and puke green. If you were just say like, put a color to what you're listening to right now. I, I mean, once again, I enjoyed the meters, but yeah, just, yeah, just bland, like drab. It never ceases to amaze me either how they just keep doing it. Like they just keep doing it. It's it's like they, there's no standard or quality control. It is 1977. This is not acceptable. There's cool shit out there. Punk is raging. And I don't expect you to go get the Sex Pistols or something risky maybe for your for your network TV show. I don't want to get into a whole thing. <laughs> so we go to the good nights and Broderick Crawford thanks everyone from sitting on his chair. The cast comes in and, and hugs him and uh, Ackroyd and Murray lift Linda Ronstadt up in the air. Now in the uh, front down stage left is uh, John Belushi and he's wearing a sweater with a big M on it. Pardon the, uh, pardon the pronunciation here. Marixio or Mario Lau was a 16 year old teen who was battling cancer that uh, Belushi had befriended. So the M is for her and he shout does a shout out that you can't hear, but you can see. Well, I literally just called Belushi a prick and an asshole. And you're like, so he comes out at the end there wearing a a kid with cancer. (laughs) Yeah, I was, I was holding that back for a while. (laughs) Yeah. He was really, uh, yeah, he, he really bonded with this kid and, And when they talk about his his nice side, I think they're referring specifically to this one thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll do some editing. Don't worry, bud. No, 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 don't. <laughs> let, let me ride. Yeah. You said it. Going down with the ship. Uh, sometimes I do have to edit stuff out. Do you have any nice facts about Roman Polanski there, Keith? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, let's go into our epilogue and our ratings. So the host, Broderick Crawford was good at what he did and as good as he probably could have been. Uh, He was older. His health wasn't great. Comedy wasn't his jam and he was probably painfully drunk. They used him to his best and they used him wisely. He was not integrated into the show um, and he was very much like an island unto himself. This might have been one of the spots where they actually maybe used the host better than he actually was. It was just a terrible choice to host the show at, at that point in time. That being said, I mean, he seems to have enjoyed himself. He didn't feel comfortable in a lot of the stuff he did, but you see some people who are on here who are not good, but seem to be enjoying themselves. You see people who almost our skill, but don't seem to be enjoying themselves. I always lean towards the people who may not be great, but seem to be having a bit of a good time. I think he was having a bit of a good time. His monologue while, you know, I was waiting for him to talk about having an onion tied to his belt. 
It was a nice little story. The crowd laughed when he said it took 40 years. He did some okay stuff in the Highway Patrol. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but I actually enjoyed the Gary Weiss film. As far as what he contributed, it wasn't much, but they didn't put him in a whole lot. Good for him. He seemed to have a bit of fun telling stories to the young folks. And who are the people at SNL to get after a host who wants to, you know, sneak down to have a beer? Julie, I am fucking shocked by the amount of things you had to say for a host that was such an absolute non-entity for me. It's like he wasn't even there. And you just talked about him for like 10 minutes. Kudos. That's crazy. Uh, I, I felt, yeah, it was like a hostless show for me. He, he did nothing for me. He was in that Gary Weiss film. So are a bunch of other weirdos. For me, he wasn't even there. But if I had to rate him out of a number, I wouldn't be able to. I'd have to abstain without enough evidence to rank appropriately. Yeah, to me, I mean, to me, it's like, okay, the, the New York Rangers decide to have a seniors night. So they get Angela Lansbury. They put her on skates. I'm impressed if she could skate, but she shouldn't even be there. You know, that's <laughs> sort of how I, I looked at this. <laughs> Are you out of your mind? I would pay upwards to $10,000 to watch Angela Lansbury play for the New York Rangers. So the epilogue for him, he continues to make some sporadic TV and film appearances, but but really slowed down not long after this. Really has some degree of immortality as the first popular tough guy cop on TV, and it gave him some cash value uh, for a long, long time. And he died in 1986 at the age of 74. I have one more little thing to throw on there. Uh, as far as his legacy, and uh, I spent a period of time there as a dealer uh, at a casino. And if you're starting hand in uh, Texas Hold'em, it's a 10 and a 4, because he'd always say 10-4. It's called a Broderick Crawford. Cool. We now go to the music. Uh, I like Dr. John. I like Levon Helm, and I like the Saturday Night Live band. I don't know too much about Paul Butterfield, but he's obviously pretty good. The first song, Sing Sing Sing, I really liked. The second one was fun for me, but not a patch on the first. I thought it was good stuff. You know, I bash them quite a bit. I'm sure they're fine. It's just, it's 100% not the type of music. Anything with a harmonica, I immediately zone out on, right? It's, 100, it's just not my taste in music at all. And if it's your taste in music, more power to you. But yeah, no, I have very little good to say about this, but that's personal opinion. I, I gotta, just because I like Neil Young so much, I gotta, I gotta stick up for the harmonica just for a second. But even the name, the RCO All-Stars, it sounds like it's in the bin at Value Village. Sometimes it's hard for me when we get to the end. I've aired such a cathartic grievance already that when we get here, like, I, I feel a little spent. I'm all out of hate. So what was the worst sketch of the night, fellas? Uh, for me, I'd probably give it to, uh, I might be alone on this one, but I'm going to give it to the I Love Lucy sketch. It just didn't have the energy that it needed, in my opinion. Aside from the, wah, I didn't even find the Lucy that fantastic. It was just too slow. It didn't have, it didn't have what it needed to be to be a parody of an already very popular and very funny bit. You know, it had some stiff competition, but that one for me, it just didn't do anything for me. <laughs> Fuck Barbara Walters and that stupid Godzilla interview. I know you guys liked it. Okay, I have no time, no time for this. For me, it was the Houston plan. There wasn't much wrong with it, really. It was a weak link in an evening of pretty good sketches. Um, you know, it was always nice to see Nixon and uh, and Crawford had a had a stint coming up playing Hoover, but uh, it didn't work for me. I will say that on a different day or even a different hour, it could have very easily been that high, Highway Patrol sketch for me. So what's your best sketch for the night, fellas? This is easy. Uh, Bill Murray is the new kid. It did what it was supposed to do. We will see moving forward how it goes, but it's the first real spotlight that I've seen that he's had. The audience reacted well to it. It made Bill Murray stand out, and I think that moving forward, he'll have a lot more stuff to do because it was really good and well-delivered. I agree with Chili completely. It is easy. It is definitely this piece of the show. It is definitely an exaggeration to say this is some sort of star-making moment. But I thought it was smart. I thought it was funny. I thought it was performed very well. That's what you remember. It's a moment on the show. You know, this is the thing. Who, nobody remembers anything else about this hit-and-miss, hostless, musical joke of a show. They remember this. It's historic, with good reason. Best part. 
Well, gentlemen, I'm throwing a curveball here, uh, much like the Richard Pryor episode where I didn't pick the famous one because it didn't make me laugh the most. I, I'm actually going with the Lucille Ball A-bomb sketch. I thought it was a perfect parody. I thought Lucy was fantastic. I loved the danger if one of them things dropped. It was game over. I love the notion of whipped cream and cherry on top of a uh, nuclear warhead. And I thought Ackroyd was friggin' hilarious as the generic 50s boss. Um, I know the historical import of the, the Bill Murray one, but minute to minute, laugh for laugh, it didn't match the Lucy one for me. And I know this is probably tantamount to uh, sacrilege to, to, to Saturday Night Live fans and Bill Murray fans, but that's how I felt tonight. So who was your star of the night? Dan Aykroyd brought it to everything he was in, in this hostless show. He carried such a huge load, all of his usual energy, all of his usual great impressions, even though I, I certainly didn't like everything he was in, but one must admire the force of his conviction. Yeah, I'm going to give it to Aykroyd as well. It was tempted to give it to Murray for that one sketch, but otherwise he didn't really have a whole lot to do during the rest of the night. It wasn't Aykroyd's best night, but I don't think I don't think it'll go down as anyone's best night. But Aykroyd delivered for what he had to deliver, even in some bad sketches. But also kudos to Jane too, because I think she did a pretty decent weekend update without having the best material. We three are on different worlds tonight. I went with Belushi. I thought his samurai was one of the best ones yet, uh, especially with no buck there. The bit at the uh, the hibachi table was hilarious. The Godzilla bit I loved. The engaged half of the uh, Siamese priest. And his Luck of the Irish rant might have been, in my opinion, his best segment to date on the show. Everyone was good on this episode, though some were used very sparingly. And it is the night of Bill Murray's favorite speech. Uh, but Belushi was definitely, for me, the man of the hour. I don't always like his brand of comedy, but uh, he was completely nailing it this week for me. I didn't think to look up who played Godzilla. <laughs> and, you know, all the time I was, uh, you know, uh, bashing Belushi today and almost every other episode, uh, I liked Godzilla and I guess Belushi was Godzilla. So. For God's sakes, Chili, he supports kids with cancer. <laughs> Oh, you're right. Let's go back and re-edit all the other episodes and I'll say nice <laughs> things about him. No, let's just keep it as it is and you say, I've always spoken up for Belushi. <laughs> <laughs> so overall, uh, this is a really tricky episode for me to gauge by like my usual scoring metrics. The host was probably purposely ineffective and I was really turned off by the limited appearance of the meters. I really liked all the music though. I had no major issues with anything on the show, but... No sketch really blew me away. My real takeaway for this one was how much I really liked uh, Belushi. I thought, despite all that, this episode did clip along pretty quick pace for me. And I wasn't really overly bored at any point, which is which is always good. Um, but I wasn't really uh, intrigued either. So uh, I'm giving this one a 6 out of 10. Yeah, for me, I mean, when I think of the episodes I've done with you guys, it usually boils down to... For better or worse, the host is what I remember it by. There might be some sketches here or there, but you know, if you ask me in two months who hosted the episode where Bill Murray gave the good speech, I couldn't tell you. So even though this time it was objectively a very bad host, I didn't find this to be a very bad episode, especially compared to some of the ones I've had. The music, uh, you know, I said enough about the music. The meters were good. The other ones, not so much. And no one really had a standout. So I honestly think this, for me, is about as middle-of-the-road episode as you can get. So I'm giving it a 5 out of 10. I'm thinking you have no host. Uh, you have very inconsistent quality up and down, as, as we've uh, said ad nauseum over the past hour. The music stinks. The jokes aren't always funny. The cast is doing their best to carry this show. But I mean, they're, you know, they're in the writer's room. You could work harder. Too many missing pieces. I didn't laugh nearly enough. Below average. 4.5 out of 10 for me. So with my 6, uh, Matt's 4.5, and Chili's 5, we average at a 5.2. And over at the Internet Movie Database, they gave this one a 7.4, which is over two points higher than what we gave it. 
They ranked a 10th for the season and 177th overall. I'm going to extrapolate from that that uh, that seems very generous to you. It's fucking stupid. That seems extremely generous because I always assume that the host has a lot to do with how people nowadays look back on things. And I can't see modern, well, even let's say from the very beginning of IMDb, I can't picture what about this episode people would find so special to put a 10th of the season. Murray's monologue, I would almost guarantee it. Almost every episode has something along those lines. Like Murray's monologue was great, but it's not something that everybody I think would know. I mean, we're obviously on the inside. <laughs> we host a podcast, so we're basically on the inside of SNL. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, this is stuff that we look up and you guys way more than I do. Yeah, I don't know. I find it very hard to believe that this is ranked so high with, especially with such an ineffective host and musical guest. It's because you can you can get away with being a one-hit wonder uh, with, with the with the advantage of nostalgia. It, it was a one-hit wonder episode, mm. but it was... You know, the fact that people really liked the hit. Dexie's Midnight Runners didn't have a good album. They had the hit. It's not a fun band. You know, a song. Pretty shitty. Go listen. After you're finished listening to this podcast and all of our backlog, go listen to a Dexie's Midnight Runners album. Yeah. It sucks. So, Chili, it has been an absolute pleasure, again, having you here. You, you've you you've gone through the tippy tops and the, the drizzling shits, and this turned out for you to be kind of smack dab in the middle for you have i gone to the tippy tops <laughs> when were the tippy tops i ha- i did have one that was really good which one was norman it? lear you had norman lear yes and i like had, norman lear and Paul i think Simon i did with the turkey costume they had lots of bollocks in both those episodes and it was it was fun but you know i say it every time i like having stuff to complain about and <laughs> this episode <laughs> did not disappoint like most of them so next time you get somebody in their 80s or 90s you know <laughs> sitting in a chair barely moving i'm all for it well we're going to see you again in about 3 episodes with a, uh, a typically a, a better loved host we won't talk about it right now but we'll see you in uh, on episode 19 so we've got two and then you're back I'm trying to think of an extremely old person who could be the host. At this point, Groucho. (laughs) W.C. Fields hosting in 1978. Yeah, I think he'd been dead for like 20 years, hadn't he? Yeah, they put up the 70s equivalent of a hologram, which would have been a cardboard cutout. (laughs) So yeah, Chili, thanks so much for joining us tonight. No, thanks for having me, guys. It's always a blast. Always a blast for me, Chili. Appreciate it. No problem. So, Matt, do you know who's coming up next week? I don't. We have a comic writer and uh, comedian, Jack Burns. You familiar with his work at all? I'm not. Uh, early uh, comedy partner of George Carlin, and then later uh, Avery Schreiber uh, wrote for Hee Haw and uh, a couple of other things. Hee Haw? Yeah. Well, I know me some Hee Haw. Oh, man, I love Hee Haw. And uh, a new person will be joining us. Uh, Rebecca will be sitting in with us for that uh, that episode. And there is a very historic footnote about uh, next week's episode. Rebecca was on Hee Haw. <laughs> <laughs> no, and uh, Santana is the musical guest, Carlos Santana and company. See, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. I'm looking forward to that. That's cool music of the day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do he it. does do Black Magic Woman, which is about five years old, but still cool as hell. Still cool today. So we'll be back in about a week. But until then, Matt will be waiting for MTV here in SN Hell. <laughs>